The world of agriculture technology is vast and constantly evolving, with new innovations and companies emerging at a rapid pace. At AgTech Media Group, we understand the importance of staying updated and connected in this dynamic industry, and that's why we're thrilled to announce the launch of our new AgTech Company Directory, a comprehensive and user-friendly resource designed to help you navigate the complex landscape of AgTech innovators. More than just a list, it's a curated collection of companies leading the charge in transforming the AgTech sector from startups pioneering new farming methods to established companies adopting cutting-edge technologies. Our directory spans a wide range of leaders dedicated to advancing agriculture through technology. Whether you're a farmer looking for the latest in crop monitoring tools and investors seeking promising ag tech startups or a researcher interested in sustainable farming practices, ag tech directory is designed to cater to your specific needs. You can filter by sector, technology, size, or location to find exactly what you're looking for. To learn more and to claim your company listing, visit agtechcompanies.com. I remember distinctly H.W. Bush, who's since passed away, but I had a chance to sit down with him and he said to me, I love that you're interested in public service, but I would really encourage you to establish a career for yourself and make that mark and then either in tandem or after the fact, uh, go into public service because then you're not necessarily beholden to a salary from that service. Welcome to the Vertical Farming Podcast, weekly conversations with fascinating CEOs, founders, and ad tech visionaries. Join us every week as we dive deep into the world of vertical farming with your host, Harry Duran. Vertical Farming Podcast, Season 2. Welcome back. If this is your first time listening, I'm positive you're in the right place, as this is the show where we interview fascinating CEOs and founders of some of the leading vertical farming companies from around the world. I'm your host, Harry Duran. In case you missed last week's episode, I had a great conversation with Tobias Peggs. He's the CEO of Square Roots. Tobias is such an engaging personality, and we really had a great time, and I couldn't think of a better way to kick off the season. If you haven't listened to it already, I highly recommend you check it out. I couldn't be more excited to announce our partnership with Series as a sponsor for this episode and several of our episodes this season. Series combines smart greenhouse design with customized climate control technology to build sustainable grow environments for year-round protection. They work with their customers and clients every step of the way, from helping to secure funding to providing growing data. Whether you're a commercial entrepreneur, an educator, or someone looking for a rewarding hobby, visit seriesgreenhousesolutions.com, and that's spelled out C-E-R-E-S, greenhousesolutions.com, and get started today on your greenhouse goals. This week, another great conversation. I get to speak with Eddie Badrina. He's the CEO of Eden Green. It's a vertical farming technology company dedicated to changing the way we farm food and feed our communities. Eddie and I discuss his entrepreneurial journey, his experience working in politics, how he launched his own startup, and the path to becoming CEO of Eden Green, including the story of the founders of the company itself. Eddie's got a strong background in digital marketing, and he shares his thoughts on risk-taking and his longtime personal and professional goal of creating exponential positive social and cultural change. You'll hear Eddie talk repeatedly about this idea of product market fit, and I think it's really appropriate that he comes from a different industry in applying that knowledge to eating green. As a reminder, if you're enjoying this episode or past episodes, I'd love it if you leave a rating and a review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash VFP. As promised, here's a couple of recent reviews that came in. I may have read these off last season. I had them marked as open. So in case you're hearing this again, apologies. Dr. EVS says, a new podcast addressing a rising industry, a nice balance of facts and people. Mark Dash Andre M says, what a unique opportunity to listen to all these CEOs and inventors. It is almost only possible because the market is still small, but will grow rapidly in the coming years. Thank you, Harry and the team for all of this useful information that we cannot find anywhere else. Keep up the good work. Thank you so much. And lastly, Bound to Cover Ground <laughs> writes, Leveraging Science and Scale. Harry provides great content and interviews with industry leaders. His podcasts introduce the necessary tough questions for vertical farming as an emerging market and desperately needed scaling to meet demand. 
Thank you all for the reviews. I really, really take those to heart. It's a sign that the podcast is resonating with you, and I appreciate the time you take to write them. Okay, I'm really excited about this conversation with Eddie, so let's get into it. So Eddie Badrina, CEO of Eden Green, thank you so much for joining us on the Vertical Farming Podcast. Thanks for having me. Pleasure to be here. Likewise. I'm a little groggy-eyed, date stamping this. It's November 4th, 2020. I went to sleep at 2 a.m. You and me both. You and me both. We're just fine. Been a long night, and I'm sure it might be another couple of those before we figure out who the the new leader of the free world is. (laughs) The good thing is, the history of this country says, we'll get it solved. We'll get it figured out. Either way, one way or another. In doing a bit of research uh, on your background, Eddie, it, it seems like uh, you've had what I would call the the entrepreneurial bug or the the bug to like you know work on a on a bunch of different businesses. I'm wondering if you can recall the earliest memory of you making a dollar. Oh man, I can absolutely recall that. So I grew up as uh, the son of Filipino immigrants. So my parents came over in 1969. And uh, they just instilled in me a really hard work ethic, both me and my older sister. Uh, But one of the things was we had to earn our allowance. Mm. And if we wanted to buy anything, we had to buy it on our own. So I would say my first official job was mowing the lawn. And then that was quickly followed by understanding just, man, that it's hot in Houston. So I was born and raised in Houston and it's really hot and there are younger kids all around me. So I said, well, what if I babysat for the summer? So I ended up running, no (laughs) joke, I ended up running like a little daycare for three other kids. I don't remember how old I was. I couldn't have been more than seventh grade. And so I ran that for the whole summer. It was pretty, it was pretty fun. All I did was play with the other little kiddos. And now that I think back on it, Harry, I'm unsure about why the parents even trusted me to do that. Uh, there are other Filipino immigrant parents, so they have to work. So I guess it was like, yeah, hey, yeah. I, yeah. I know him. I saw him in diapers. He's a responsible kid. Yeah. I'm just going to foist my kids over to him. Uh, and so it was it was pretty fun, but I earned my keep that way. And then uh, had a chance to, you know, just everywhere, I, even in college, university, and then in grad school, I worked. So I wasn't a stranger to the entrepreneurial uh, bug. And then... When you got out of college, you, you're a Texas A&M grad. And mm-hmm. so when you, you came out, was the initial thought that that seed had been planted for you from an entrepreneurial perspective? Or did you think, okay, I'm, I need the nine to five. <laughs> I need the security. I should go looking for that. So I'd, I've not had a traditional career per se. So after undergrad, I went to grad school at the Bush School, got a degree, a grad degree in international affairs, public administration and international affairs, and then just had a chance to go up to Washington, D.C. and enter into the policy world. So November the 4th, this is very familiar to me because I was, for four years, uh, I was an analyst at the State Department in the Middle East. Wow. And then for two years, I was President Bush's Asian American spokesperson. Uh, So I was involved in uh, the, I guess it was the 04 elections pretty heavily. So you're getting all sorts of like reminders and flashbacks. What I'm getting is PTSD is what I'm getting. That's true. Yeah. yeah. So I'm glad, very thankful for, I mean, I'm actually very thankful for the staff and the workers in both parties uh, to make this thing possible and for just to make voting possible, you know? Uh, So anyway, that was my first six years of my career was in uh, international politics policy and then in the domestic arena. After that, in 06, I just found myself really jaded with politics. Wasn't great for me, wasn't great for my marriage. And so we decided to move back from uh, DC back to Texas. And uh, I Hmm. spent some time with a bank and then I jumped off and joined a telecom startup. So that was my reintroduction into the entrepreneurial lifestyle. Uh, I was the director of comms for a telecom startup here in town in Dallas and really learned how to run a business that way. So it was a year and a half in that startup. It didn't end well, but it was a paid, basically is was, was the MBA of hard knocks. 
for me. And uh, I got paid to learn how to run a business, like all mm-hmm. aspects of it, operations, finance, yeah. sales, investor relations, the whole deal, yeah. as well as product market fit. So after that, I hung my own shingle and said, man, I can do this. I can consult on strategy and marketing and communications. Uh, and then I paired up with my business partner of one of my companies called BuzzShift, paired up with them, with him and started BuzzShift in 2010. Uh, we built that up from scratch, bootstrapped it, and then actually sold it in 2016. Uh, and so I've been there, done that, gotten the M&A t-shirt. And then we had the opportunity 11 months later to buy it back. Wow. So we, yeah, we actually bought it back and uh, it was up and running after about a year after that, it was up and running and we had created a leadership team so well that I was able to take a step back and look and see, okay, what do I want to do for the second half of my career that three things that stuck out to me? One, I really wanted to do hardware, software. Mm. I had done professional services and it was great, but I wanted a new challenge. Again, that entrepreneurial bug, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, the second is I wanted to leave a social and cultural impact that was a multiple of my level of effort. So if for one unit of energy or effort that I was giving out, I wanted it to produce through a company 10 or 12x of that unit, right? Uh, but have it a social and cultural Can I put you there for a second? Yeah. Because that's really fascinating. Um, where was the thought that that was important to you? Like, where's the seed for that planted? So it's really planted in my faith, honestly. So as I had uh, just grown up having a faith and growing up in church, it was always, and then honestly, uh, the Bush family had a huge impact on my life of really emphasizing public service. Mm. And that public service is a noble calling. And I remember distinctly, H.W. Bush, who's since passed away, but I had a chance to sit down with him and he said to me, hey, I love that you're interested in public service, but I would really encourage you to establish a career for yourself and make that mark and then either in tandem or after the fact, uh, go into public service because then you're not necessarily beholden Mm. to a salary from that you know, from that service, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, you've made your mark, you've made a financial, uh, made yourself and your family financially stable, and you're able to act with much more freedom when you want to go and serve the public. So that's really what the seed was. And then, you know, just through the years, seeing other people do it, thinking, man, is there a way I can combine that, right? And so that was really crystallized. That thought was really crystallized. Uh, there's some folks out of New York City called Praxis Labs, and they really emphasize what's called a redemptive framework for organizations. Mm-hmm. And that's where, in contrast to exploitative companies, uh, which treat their employees poorly, uh, the leaders eat first, they're always at the head of the line, and they're a net negative to the community around them. Mm-hmm. Uh, in contrast to that, you have ethical companies, which they treat their employees fairly, the leaders eat alongside them, and they are a net neutral to the community around them or slightly positive. Uh, Praxis emphasizes a third way, which is the redemptive framework, which is the leaders eat last. They're sacrificial, Mm. right? They bless their employees generously Mm. and uh, then they're a net positive to the community around them. So that's what I really wanted to, that's what I was looking for in the next business that I wanted to help create or join I was looking for that redemptive framework. So, did you know that's what you were looking for when you set out on that journey, or did it sort of appear and then you said, "Oh, this is this is what I've been looking for"? <laughs> that's a great question. So, it actually, uh, I identified those three things that I had talked about before: the hardware, software, the cultural and social impact. And then the third one was just a unique culture, identifying a and building a unique company culture. I had identified those three things as well as had been exposed to the redemptive framework before I even came across Eden Green. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was sort of set in my mind and I was just, you know, you know, I was running BuzzShift and and I wanted to be excellent with that. Right. My my parents and what they had taught me in in just work and in faith is in in everything do it with excellence 
So I, I wanted to be excellent with working with BuzzShift, but I also knew that I had the, I think I had the skill set and the drive to be excellent in something else additionally. So I was looking for that and I was patient and to wait for that to come along. Uh, I had, I had talked about it with some friends and close colleagues, just about my desire to do something different, uh, to uh, take a step back from BuzzShift. Uh, we had created a great leadership team and BuzzShift is doing great. Honestly, I think it's doing better without me. Uh, I had kind of worked myself out of a job, which is what every leader ought to do, right? You should rise, sure. hire people who are better than yourself, who are smarter than yourself. Don't be ashamed or don't be threatened by those folks. And then uh, and then see how they perform and they'll usually raise the, the level of the entire organization, which then allows you to focus on the highest and best use of your time. And so the highest and best of use of my time was uh, a little bit of time there, but really it opened me up to saying, okay, what's the higher and best use of my time? And that was trying to find and trying to run a company with, uh, with those three pieces and with that redemptive framework. When did the, this concept of uh, locally grown food, this, you know, the challenges we have with the food supply chain, uh, vertical farming, ag tech, like when did these things start to appear on your radar? So the locally grown food had appeared quite a while ago when I was, even when I was in Washington, D.C., uh, my wife and I made it a regular point to go to the farmer's market. Mm. And as our kids have grown up, they have always enjoyed going to farmer's markets, whether it's in Virginia or here in Dallas. Yeah. The problem was for me was it was a qualitative thing. It was a great Saturday morning jaunt with our kiddos. But if you, if you wanted to get something on the regular besides eggs and, you know, some meat, but if you wanted to get like produce on the regular, you just couldn't do it. And it wasn't consistent. Uh, and really, honestly, I looked around me and it was a lot of folks that looked, necessarily looked like me, but were in the same socio- socioeconomic status. And so it wasn't accessible just to the normal everyday person who maybe couldn't get out on a Saturday because they're working, right? Yeah, yeah. So uh, I saw gaps in that locally grown space. And, uh, and that's where, that's where it just, it first dawned on me that there's a market gap there for locally grown food. Now, COVID, as you know, uh, didn't necessarily trigger any trends. It, it just accelerated all the trends that were all pre-existing, right? That's a good point. Yeah. And so one of the trends that it accelerated, that it amplified was this trend of locally grown food. So all of a sudden, it became from qualitative and optional, if you will, to post-COVID with the bottlenecks in the supply chains and the fragility in the supply chain, all of a sudden, locally grown meant a very, very different uh, value proposition. And so that's what we're trying to do. And that's what I identified for Eden Green is one of our goals is to redefine locally grown. And for us, locally grown doesn't mean farmer's markets. It doesn't mean it's not qualitative, but it's very rigorous in one, providing consistent greens. So year-round, season agnostic, basic foodstuffs that people need to survive. And that could be butterhead lettuce. It could be arugula, spinach, kale, peppers, strawberry, things like that, right? Herbs that you don't all of a sudden you don't want to be dependent on the Salinas Valley in California, right? That it's great and it grows volumes of it. But right now we're seeing a lettuce shortage sheerly because of warmer weather and because of a virus, right? Mm. Uh, So you don't want to be dependent on the Salinas Salinas Valley. And then you don't want to be dependent on East Coast weather patterns and uh, they're more susceptible to snow and cold, right? So there's the consistency. And the second thing we want to redefine for locally grown is accessibility. We want everyone to be able to uh, have nutritious leafy greens uh, and fruits and vegetables. So I would say the big thing with that is with accessibility is we're seeing a rise in population. So there's a rise in demand. Uh, We're seeing a rise in demand overall for year round leafy greens Mm-hmm. Uh, we're seizing, we're seeing a rise in vegetable demand, whether it be through straight salads or through your 
uh, not your plant-based protein, right? So you're seeing a rise not just in fresh produce, but in in consumer packaged goods that use produce. And then the last thing is you're seeing a diminished supply due to supply chain, due to just overall weather patterns, due to volatility. So when you see a rise in demand and a drop in supply, basic economics tell you you're going to see a rise in price. Well, then the rise in price doesn't make it accessible to everyone, right? But with vertical farming and with what we're doing, we think we can level that price out to make it accessible to everyone and even lower the price as the technology uh, becomes more just optimized, right? And matures. And then the last thing besides consistency and accessibility is just safety. It's food safety. I think we've all seen a rise in E. coli and salmonella outbreaks and these viruses that are in Salinas Valley that are affecting the, the lettuce. And it's because either because of weather patterns, unforeseen external factors, or it's because we're cutting corners in the supply chain and we're trying to get more out quicker because of those bottlenecks. And we're just stuffing those bottlenecks with produce. But you've seen it. The, the byproduct of that is a lot of it goes to waste because you can't yeah. get it through all the bottleneck, right? Or it gets through so quickly and we've cut corners that it comes out to the consumer and it's older, it's more prone to disease, and they're more susceptible to seeing uh, to seeing the, the manifestations of that. And that's not being consumer-centric. That's being supply chain-centric. Mm. And we don't want to be as a as coming from a marketing world, right? Uh, with a marketing company, consumer centric is everything, everything for a, for a brand and for a, a supplier. So we, we have this dual thing of in Eden green of being plant centric. Our greenhouses are plant centric, but our business is consumer centric. That's an important distinction. Yeah. Um, can you tell, talk a little bit for those that don't know the origin story of Eden green, how, it, how it was founded? Yeah, it's a it's an amazing story. Uh, so, two brothers, Jacques and uh, Eugene Van Buren, were in South Africa, and this was probably eight to ten years ago. And uh, the story is is a poignant one. They were passing out food in their community, and they're passing out candy. Actually, they had sort of bounce houses and and all this food, uh, and and they're passing out candy. And this little kid came up to them. He was probably only six, five, and they gave him candy, and he stuffed it in his pocket. Yeah. And they said, well, why did you stuff it in your pocket? You can have some. And he said, well, it's not my day to eat. My sister's back home and I have to bring it to her because it's her day to eat. Wow. And for them, I mean, they were structural mechanical engineers, but it struck such a chord in their heart. They said, man, we have to figure out a way to where no kid has to say, it's not my day to eat. Mm. And so that triggered in them just this journey of developing this vertical farming technology and these towers. So we have, we have these, the patents of the technology are actually these 18 foot towers. We can actually build them taller, but they're 18 foot towers that grow plants and produce very, very efficiently. You know, that, that to me is, I mean, it's, it's the heart of the company and I didn't want to lose that As, as fast as we grow and as fast as, you know, as big as we scale, at the end of the day, we're just trying to change the way we farm so that we can change the way we feed people. Mm. That's the genesis of Eden Green. And, and my vision is that we continue through to wherever uh, wherever this takes us. How did you meet the brothers? So I met them through a mutual friend. Uh, they had created a great technology. I, they were just having trouble with the business model, right? Uh, and, you know, it, it, every there's no there's no invalid business model if you can make money but the business model of the plenties the business model of uh the bowries just wasn't working for them mm-hmm. and and i think that's probably a, a big difference when you're making something from scratch in south africa you have to be efficient from the get go no, there's not a lot of money being thrown at you and so you have to be scrappy and resourceful well, the byproduct of that is an entrepreneur's dream. That means you're working from a base, a foundation of profitability, yeah. right? And so as they developed this, they were trying to, I think, you know, the previous management were doing their best to try to 
emulate some of these bigger companies. But at the end of the day, you know, I took a look at it and I just told them like, hey guys, this is a fantastic technology company that happens to grow produce. I come from a from a technology, a, a MarTech background. Yeah. And what, what I see is you could potentially make this, and this is where we're going, is we want to be the Intel inside. We want to be the sales force of produce, right? Oh, that's nice. <laughs> I will build the platform. We have a great platform. We will help you construct. We will help you hire, manage, and train the staff, and then we'll license you the technology. But like Salesforce and Benioff, he doesn't care what you do with it, Hmm. right? He just wants you using that platform, and then he's going to create an ecosystem, and he has created an ecosystem where other vendors, contractors, entrepreneurs, businesses can plug into that platform, API into that platform, and produce whole yeah. businesses off of that. It's the same thing that we want to do, right? We want to empower uh, entrepreneur-led investor groups. We want to empower philanthropies, nonprofits, nation states, regional authorities, universities, corporate research arms. We want to empower them to use this platform of this patented technology, grow what they want to grow, will help them figure out the profitability, even if, if they, for universities and for nonprofits, they don't want it to be profitable. They just want it to be sustainable economically, right? Break even will help you do that. But then, man, you go off to the races and we want to train you to do that. And man, if you can create analytics packages off of it, BI, predictive consumer analytics, uh, you know, growing analytics and growing predictions, by all means, plug it in right Interesting. And, and and go for it but that's what we want we have no interest in having our own uh, retail brand per se like a mm. plenty right and kudos to them yeah, they, have, yeah. they have gobs of money to yeah. produce that retail <laughs> brand but you and i both know it's hard to grow yeah it's hard to distribute and it's hard to run a retail brand you want to do all three you need a ton of money and a ton of time. And again, our foundation is scrappy. Our foundation is entrepreneurial. And so we want, we the way that we are now positioned, the shift, the pivot, if you will, is these greenhouses are economic units unto themselves. And, uh, and we just want to provide folks with the opportunity to use them to their benefit. And I would love to see a hundred greenhouses all around the world that are all mesh network together and that are learning that have their own ecosystem, right? Their business ecosystem. They're all learning from each other. Maybe they specialize, right? Maybe they, maybe, you know, in a, in a tri-state area, in a 400 mile radius, you've got one greenhouse that just wants to specialize in arugula, another one that just wants to specialize in lettuce and another one that just wants to specialize in herbs, right? They may all be owned by different entities, but they're all working together and saying, hey, I've got this customer that wants this. I've got this offtake agreement that's looking for this. Let's mesh network together and, and distribute that as a as a group, right? And we can mm-hmm. all benefit from that, even though we're we're all running our, our own separate PLs. Yeah. This is really fascinating because what you brought to Eden Green has been that whole experience, you know, obviously talking about mesh networks, talking about, you know, uh, lettuce as a service or vegetables as a service. Those are concepts that I think if people don't come from that background, they come from the traditional agriculture uh, agriculture route. Uh, It's not something that they're thinking of. They're not thinking of how can I be more efficient? They're just, you know, focused on the growth and how to make the best um, you know, vegetables, tastiest vegetables possible. Yeah. And I think in order to succeed in this environment, I, I, having that experience of that you have specifically in the, in the work you've done at BuzzShift, I'm sure you probably have seen examples of projects you've tried of initiatives that, you know, with a, with a little bit of creativity, you then can apply to this, to this world. Absolutely. I, I've seen, I've seen hundreds of companies, and business models come through our doors, right? Because our, our job was to market them, right? And uh, and the first thing that we look at now, and the first thing that I looked at when I got here was product market fit. Okay, so what's the product? What's the market? And does it is it is it valuable to that market at a rate at a scale that makes it profitable from an enterprise value and that makes it 
profitable and uh, valuable from like an enterprise valuation, right? So, and then some business models are just geared towards market share. They're not really worried about profitability. They just want market share because their end goal is to then sell to a, you know, a bigger entity, yeah. right? They just wants either the top line revenue or they want the technology or they just want, right, the volume. This was not built for that. So I had to find a product market fit for this particular type of technology. And, and fortunately, I mean, it came very, very easily to me. It was, a, it was as clear as day what the business model ought to be. So now we perfected the technology. Uh, we're about to break ground on our first commercial facility. Mm. And then it's, and it's off to the races now. Like we've gotten so much interest. COVID, again, has accelerated the trend. So while it uh, while it has slowed for a lot of other businesses, it's actually it's heightened the awareness for folks like us uh, who you know from a capital perspective, people are people the capital is starting to thaw and they're looking how to they're looking to deploy that capital in undervalued ways. And right now, I think as a whole, the vertical farming industry has its has had its fits and starts right. But it's undervalued. The technology and and uh, the industry itself is is very nascent. It's very young and it's undervalued. And so we're seeing a lot of capital interest because of that. What was it about, or what did you see specifically in the brothers um, that you know made you decide that this is a partnership that was important for you in terms of the next journey in in, in your career? I think what I saw in them was what, first of all, passion, right? They weren't doing it to, uh, you know, to make a buck per se, obviously they're business people, Mm -hmm. but their passion was really feeding people. And so that spoke to me volumes because I knew when things got tough, uh, their ability to solve problems was based on that inner passion. Right. I I think that another thing that was attractive was, uh, that, the technology wasn't vaporware. Like it actually existed. They had proven it out and it just needed a business model to be wrapped around it. So uh, if I had come into something where they had this idea or this concept and it had, they had never, you know, they had never run it through trials. They had never uh, used it uh, in, you know, extensively, uh, it would have been a much harder sell for me to come on board so the probability of success was increased surely because they had done the heavy lifting of creating the first R&D facility, have it up and running, working out all the kinks, right? So that, that was huge. So now fast forward to present day, can you talk a little bit about the current offerings and where you've set your sights on to, in terms of like your, your, your target market, what yep. areas you want to play in, you know, which specific technologies you want to make a, you know, you want to make a name for yourself in. Yeah. So, so our current offerings are our acre and a half greenhouses. And uh, like I said before, we'll build, we'll construct them. Uh, we, we have partnerships with great engineering firms that uh, we've developed things that uh, the mechanical engineering and plumbing, and of course the towers, the lights, uh, the greenhouse module itself, the shell, uh, we can package everything up in shipping containers and send them over. So it's, it's, it's made to be shipped and stood up uh, in a, in a mm. very quick fashion. So uh, the acre and a half, modules are really our core product Uh, we've developed smaller ones obviously when you get smaller your economies of scale go down and you get to a size where they they're not profitable maybe they're break even at a certain size but you know for a a nonprofit uh, who can afford that maybe they want that capital investment they're able to find a couple of donors who are really willing to donate that capex to put one of these call it 10,000 square feet or 20,000 square feet down. And, and that'll produce a hundred thousand pounds a year of produce. Mm. So that's a, I mean, that makes a serious dent in, in your local populations or dietary needs, you know? So then if we can, if we have those modules, those smaller modules, as well as the big one and a half acre 
greenhouses, then then what? Who who's the audience, right? Yeah. So the audience is, I, I think I mentioned it before, is retailers, wholesalers who want to their value proposition or their problem that they're trying to solve is they want to integrate their supply chain. They want to vertically integrate their supply chain. Maybe they want to, they have, they're both diversifying their supply chain as well as backstopping it uh, in, in, in the case of supply chain breaks from a distributor or from a, from a, a supplier perspective. Some of them may want to use these to power their own private labels, hmm. right? And they want something special uh, that can private power their private labels. It may be a distributor who is wants to just become a, a little more diversified and not depend so much on their processors or the growers, you know. So that that could be a, a and then you could have wholesalers as well, specialty wholesalers who specify you know specialize in one particular product. So that's the first one. The second one is is universities and research arms. And their value prop is consistency. Everything in our greenhouse in our system is trackable. So we've developed a tracking. We can track it from seed to harvest. And uh, we can track every variable that you need. I mean, it, you're familiar with it, with vertical farming. We, yeah. Every variable that use, that is needed to grow, we can track and we can control, even down to water temperature. Mm. So that's something that's very appealing to pharma research arms, right? Biotech, universities who want to both enable professors who are tenured as well as research professors and research students. And then the third one is nation states and municipal authorities. Could be could be cities who are looking for city resiliency. Could be regional authorities that are looking for different ways to subsidize serving their underserved populations. And it could be nation states that are looking for global food independence. Do you find that the offerings are appealing to each of those individual sectors because of the decision to not have it be a solution that's 100% indoors? Because yours is, it's almost like a hybrid because it's greenhouse yeah. with mer- married with vertical farming. And I'm wondering, yeah. was that vision always there originally? Or is that something that, that's been sort of evolving? Yeah, so that vision has always been there. If So... Again, it goes back to the foundation of scrappiness. When you when you go full CEA, right, Con, uh, controlled environment ag. When you go full CEA, you cut off all the sunlight. You do that. What's the why? The why behind that is because you want to control the light spectrum. Well, control requires cost. So, at what cost are you controlling? You're doing it at the cost of electricity and power right? So all of a sudden, when you cut that off, guess what? It's not economically sustainable Hmm. at scale. You may could do it on a small level, uh, but when you start to scale up, the electricity needs of these CEA modules, even with LED lights, partial spectrum LED lights, the electricity needs are gargantuan, right? So there's no amount of lettuce that you're selling at $2 a pound that's going to make up for that electricity cost. I'm sorry, there's just not, right? And you're not going to be able to sell that at a premium at $5 because, you know, a pound, because the market, the the price elasticity isn't there. And, And again, a lot of the folks who are creating these are not, are they're scientists, they're not business people, and they don't have an understanding of market dynamics. So, you know, when, when you're trying to make a profit, you you try to be efficient where possible. So, I, you know, for Jacques and Eugene, it was a question of why would we cut out sunlight mm. when it's free energy, right? It just doesn't make sense to us. Yeah. Again, they're in South Africa, right? So, yeah. uh, so l- let's see if if we can use sunlight to our advantage, but then also realize if we want consistency from a commercial scale that we have to control the other aspects. So we have complementary LED lights, but our electricity usage is like one fourteenth of a CEA, a normal CEA greenhouse, oh. right? So that's the, I think that is the, uh, that is the, the key to economic viability is we're, we're using so much less electricity and power than your normal CEA. And then compared to a normal greenhouse, because we're vertical, We've got the density per square foot that a normal greenhouse yeah. can't do, right? Yeah. So 
you know, good luck trying to find five acres in the middle of a city. We don't need five acres. We need an acre and a half, hmm. right? For the same amount of produce. So all of a sudden the, the feasibility of locally grown because we're that dense and because we're using a greenhouse all of a sudden becomes very, very attainable. Yeah. And then the last piece is water. Yeah. And that's where we compete really well against uh, traditional farming. One and a half acres of ours is equal to 33 traditional farming acres. Wow. And you think about what 33 traditional farming acres, flat traditional, requires in terms of water as well as energy, right? Diesel. And labor. Harvesting <laughs> and labor, right? 862,000 gallons of water for 33 farming acres trying to grow uh, butter lettuce. We use 90,000 gallons of water. Wow. And, you know, just for perspective, my household alone, family of five, average American household uses 45,000 gallons of water a year. Wow. So we're able to grow 800 to 900,000 pounds of leafy greens in an acre and a half using the equivalent of two households of water. That's a game changer. Awesome. Yeah. Right? Really cool. So that's really, really compelling. It's a compelling argument to these, you know, for whomever, but especially for the folks who want to do urban agriculture. And then the last piece is because of our other economics are so low, it allows us to pull the lever of labor. Most people, because their other economic line items are so high, they have to put additional CapEx into automation because your CapEx skyrockets, but at least your yearly OpEx is down because you're not mm -hmm. employing all the labor, right? Yeah. There's It's a give and take. But that stinks because their CapEx is then six, seven times higher than ours yeah. for the same size of greenhouse. But because we're able to use sunlight and because we're so efficient in all the other areas, guess what? We don't have to pull that labor of autonomy. We can, but we don't have to. And so we can employ 30 full-time people. And 30 full-time people, not minimum wage, living days wage, with full be benefits hmm. year-round. And if it's in an urban area, guess what? That's where people need the jobs the most. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right? So you put one of these you know, where all of a sudden they're able to walk to work, they're growing greens, they're in an industry that you and I know is going to grow by leaps and bounds, yeah. right? Anywhere from 25 to $50 billion in 10 years market cap on the, on, on CEA. And they're doing it. So they're not doing it. It's not a dead end job. It's a full-time job in an industry that's growing. It's could be next door to their house. And they're also, you know, we, we've got a model to where uh, the greenhouse can subsidize a portion of their greens to say like a one or two or three mile radius around them. So every, uh, every resident in a one mile radius gets a pound of greens a week for a dollar, right? Wow. If you think about 900 to 800 to 900,000 pounds of produce, giving it to a thousand residents around is a drop in the bucket. It's so funny because it feels like it just the conversation has now come full circle when you talked about you know why you're in this and this idea of redemptive framework and giving back and and being a company that's going to give something back to the community, educating these these employees because I'm sure some of them have never even experienced a job like this ever before. <laughs> yeah, I've talked to a lot of my African American friends. One of my friends said, "Hey, listen." I'm only a, a generation or two away from being out in the fields. So like my grandparents farmed all their life and then they moved to, you know, then my parents moved to Dallas and then here I yeah. am, right? Yeah. In a professional industry. But he said, man, our community in specific, he was referring to the African-American community, but, but the black community is very much uh, in touch or just one generation removed from agriculture. So he's excited about it because, and he's very, very influential here in Dallas, but he's excited about it because it's reopening this idea of agriculture, but in a 21st century way mm -hmm. that uh, honestly is not 
is not foreign, it's not unfamiliar to his community. They can very quickly adapt to it, identify with it, and make real inroads into a 21st century technology. How important is it for you, given your experience with your past companies and the type of leader you've decided that you want to be, to build an organization, to grow an organization where it seems like what you're doing to, on, on this end of it sounds like it, you're creating a family, right? Of people that are, take pride in what they do, take pride in giving back to the community. And then you in turn as the CEO, like that fills you with a sense of purpose in ter- because of the, the opportunities you're, you're giving these folks and, and setting the model for what's possible. Yeah, that that's really, really important to me. It's it's one of my primary goals, right? Back to back to this thing that was set in my heart even before I found Eating Green was I wanted to make a huge social and cultural impact uh, that was exponential to my own level of effort. We can't do it alone, right? We just can't. I can't do it alone. I, I may be a great leader, but if I, I've got no one to lead, then what's the point, right? You're not a leader unless you have someone, people who are who are following you, right? So really for me, it was, it was saying, okay, what, what is, what am I really good at? And then what's on my heart? And naturally with my skill sets of being an entrepreneur, it's like, how can we make money? How can we monetize this? And how can, not just to make money, but because when we make it a profitable organization, we can employ more people right? And we can provide them with a sense of value, a sense of purpose. We can provide them with career paths. That to me is very, very, very important. And I wouldn't be in this role if I didn't think what we were building could enable that. Trying to figure out all the different paths I didn't want to go, but just <laughs> we probably oh, yeah. may have to do we can a, go a lot of conversation. I want to go touch a little bit on the marketing because of your experience and expertise you know with your digital marketing agency i i feel like you sort of have a leg up on some with some of these other companies in the vertical farming industry just because like that's your that's your jam like you know digital marketing uh, and i'm wondering how you've been beginning to think about uh to the extent that you can share it uh ideas that you have for doing something different from a from a marketing perspective well i think you know probably and it's one of the reasons that uh that the brothers and uh, the investors were really keen on bringing me on board was because I've had experience one with bringing my own company to market, right? Identifying product market fit for my own company and then bringing it going to market and producing a strategy and executing on it, but also able to look at other organizations, both nonprofit and for-profit and bringing them to market or at least enhancing their market position, Right, so taking and then then taking ownership of this and saying, okay, how would I bring this to market? It was just you're right. I mean, I do have a leg up because it's not just one company that I've brought to market. It's literally a hundred uh, through my ten years of owning Buzzshift, and yeah. so that yeah, that is I would say that is definitely a a competitive advantage that we have. Right. And it's one of the first things that I addressed when I got here was product market fit. So I think, you know, in terms of innovation, maybe it seems sort of just normal for me or de rigueur for me, but it may seem really, really innovative for the space. But I think the first thing, and, and I'm, I mean, I'm an open book, but I would say the first thing for a lot of these other uh, vertical farming Uh, companies and organizations is what's your product market fit and what's your end goal? I always, you know, I told clients and I tell myself, I tell our staff this, what's the end in mind? Begin with the end in mind and then reverse engineer it, right? If your goal is to sell, you know, container farms, right, to folks, is it going to cost $200,000, $300,000. Okay. So where are they getting that money? And do they want to recoup that money? Well, if they want to recoup that money, there are certain, only certain crops that they can grow, right? You have to think in your customers at the end, the end in mind for your customers. And if you're audience centric, you'll understand very quickly, do they want to make a profit or are they doing this for philanthropic purposes? As soon as you figure that out, 
then you can back engineer and say, well, I'm only going to focus on the philanthropic part. They're not worried about profitability. They only want break-evenness, right? Or they're willing to go to their donors every year and ask for $250,000 a year to keep this thing going. Okay, so then I'm going to arm them so that they can go back year after year and say, hey, this is how much produce we gave out. This is how many you know people that we're employing. This is how many people are interning. This is how many people we're educating, right? Mm. So I'm always thinking about, and uh, I encourage you know folks who are running businesses and organizations to think about, hey, what's the end in mind for your audience? What do they really want? What's the end in mind for you as a company? And then what are those how do you know you're successful? Yeah, what gets measured gets managed, right? Right. You can't manage what you can't measure, right? And so I think that's a lot of people miss that because they are, maybe they're engineers, maybe they've got a great idea, but they have this whole field of dreams mentality of like, if you build it, they will come. And I've seen, so, I mean, I have seen so many businesses whose founders are just, I mean, they are they are so passionate about this thing. And they're like, man, if we build it, I know we'll get customers. I'm like, really? You really think that? Let, let's, let's take a step back. Theory. Right? <laughs> Unfortunately, they test that theory after they've already built the product. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And they've spent a ton of money building a prototype and a, or a full on product yeah. going to market. And they don't even really know their audience or not able to test out. So, that I think, you know, is the biggest sort of leg up that we have in terms of marketing. It's not actually like digital marketing or social or anything else. It's really honing product market fit Hmm. that has set us apart. And I think has set us up for success. We know where we want to go. We know the valuations that we're looking for. We know the specifically, like we were built to be economic units. So then how do we sell those economic units in a way to people that they in turn, everyone wants to use an economic unit to generate more units. So how do you do that? Right. Uh, And that's business 101. That's economics 101. How has your relationship been with other folks in the vertical farming industry, ag tech? You know, obviously there's no industry conferences right. uh, for a while now, so there's there's no hobnobbing in the hallways. <laughs> right. Um, so I'm wondering what's been your experience as someone new to the to the to the industry as well. So I've had limited experience with the other uh, vertical farming companies, and I think it's just because we haven't been to a lot of events, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I I would like to think if I interacted with them, they would welcome us with open arms because it is a very young industry, and we're all trying to make a name for ourselves, right? Yeah. I would say in some of the ancillary and complementary industries, whether it's uh, supply chain management or whether it's the the value chain of produce from growers mm-hmm. all the way to retailers they have been very very one welcoming and then two open uh, to talking yeah. uh, i had you know have had great conversations with uh, sam eater down at big wheelbarrow and folks at uh, you know all across from walmart to folks at mm-hmm. 80 acres and you yeah. know all across because you know honestly at the end of the day I tell people like there's not going to be one winner in this. Yeah, of course. The demand is too great. It's too yeah. too great. And vertical farming is not a silver bullet. Like we we don't want to grow rice. It just doesn't make sense for us, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. We're not growing hops, right? We're we're not doing, you know, we can't grow a lot of types of berries cuz they have very woody stems. That's just not our deal. Mm. Uh, and then, you know, for some flat tray greenhouses, they may be just the economies of scale that may lend themselves to cheaper, you know, like an iceberg lettuce or something on the lower end of that. We're not going to touch that. That just doesn't make sense for economics. So I think there's a place for a lot of different types of vertical farming and a lot of different CEA uh, players, but I've been collaborative all of my life. I like to say that, that we play well in the sandbox Mm. uh, with others. We also want to win. Right, whatever game we're playing, we want to win. I'm I'm fully aware that there's not just going to be one winner though. So there's there's a there's a comfort in that knowing like, hey, there's probably going to be three or four or five or half a dozen of us. And it's having that uh, that abundance mindset as well too, right? Oh yeah. Again, population is growing, right? 
demand is increasing, supply is diminishing. There is room at the table for all of us. Yes. Um, What's a hard question you've had to ask yourself recently? Hard question that I've had to ask myself. I think, you know, I think honestly is when we're expanding the team, do I have the right people on the bus in the right seats? Hmm. So to me, the company is the people, right? You can, products come and go, but the company is what, the people are what make the company. And so to make this company successful, I've got to have one, the bus going in the right direction. I'm the bus driver, right? Yeah. Uh, but two, I've got to have the right people on the bus. And then three, I have to have them in the right seats. Sometimes I've got the wrong people in the bus and I'm just like, man, we got to part ways, Right. We're headed this direction and you're going this direction. And by the way, it happens all the time. Uh, You know, old school bus routes, people get on and off because they're going in different directions. But for that time period, we're all going in the same direction. So jump on the bus, get in the seat, right? So I I think there's the, the right people on the bus. And then sometimes you have the right people on the bus. They're just in the wrong seats. Yeah, yeah. And so that is a lot of what I'm, I'm questioning about a hard question of like, do I have the right people on the bus and do I have them in the right seats? Hmm. Uh, I think by, by far and large, I asked my question, I asked that question myself a lot. And then I asked that question of myself, yeah. right? What is the highest and best use of my time? I, I tell a lot of entrepreneurs and just people who want to be, you know, just or people who are climbing up the professional ladder is I tell them like, one of the things you have to do is you have to rank from top down, what's most important to you and what's least important to you. Mm -hmm. And then on the second column, you have to rank what's most essential that you have to do versus what is least essential that you have to do. You match those up, you find the things that are most important and the most essential. That's the highest and best use of your time. And then you stack rank both of those columns and then you start hiring out or delegating from the bottom all the way up. Totally but in right. order for you to do that, you have to ask yourself the hard question of what do I want to do versus what do I need to do? And then what's a really good use of my time versus what's a bad use of my time? So for instance, when you're starting a business, for me, accounting is essential, but I hate it. Right. I would much rather be out, you know, much rather be out building the business, talking to people, making sales, all that. At the beginning, you got to do accounting. But guess what? Because it's so bottom of the list on what's most important to you versus what's, but it's highest on the list of essential. That's the first thing you hire out for. Hmm, Good point. Yeah. So I'm constantly asking myself and asking my team. What's the highest and best use of your time right now? And what do we need to do to get to a place where either you can delegate that out or hire it out? Or you just need to suck it up for six months. Yeah. Right. Till we get more revenue and then we'll, and then, but that'll be, that'll be in my priority, my cue of what are the next resources that I need to, need to fulfill. So that, there's a very hard question. I ask myself that all the time. Highest and best use of time. Yeah, great answer. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. So as we wrap up, Eddie, given the uncertainty of what we're about to head into, uh, n- not only from an election standpoint, but also from a, you know, environment standpoint, COVID, you know, it's it's a lot of unknowns out there. How are you thinking about 2021? I'm actually very optimistic about 2021. I think from a pandemic level, they're going to find a vaccine but I also know that something else will come up, right? It yeah, just will. Yeah, yeah. Again, growing yeah. population, high rate of mobility, high rate of globalization, something else will come up. So all I can, the knowns are there will continue to be chaos. I'm not worried about mitigating the chaos. Uh, and on the, you know, on the economic side, uh, I think uh, that's the greatness of, of living in the United States is we just are, uh, I, I do believe in American exceptionalism and I, and I do believe that we've got the 
an economy that can survive huge tumultuous uh, political events like this because of uh, democracy. And so I think the markets will survive. And what I'm seeing right now from a trend perspective is I'm seeing uh, investment loosen up. I'm seeing uh, there's distressed real estate. So that's opportunity for me, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, as uh, you think about you think about the plays of a cash flowing business on top of distressed real estate, man, sky's the limit. Opportunities. Opportunities all over the place, right? I want us to be able to thrive on volatility, right? Hmm. Most people thrive on stability. I'm training our staff. I've, I've, uh, I've focused our team, our company. And honestly, I train my kids uh, to thrive in chaos. When yeah. you can thrive in instability and you can thrive in chaos, then you're going to stand stand out above the rest. And then when things are calm, you'll be so much better positioned than anyone else. Absolutely. Right? So a lot of that is contrary thinking. So for instance, with marketing, you, you go, I was just thinking about this from a marketing innovation we have the ability because of just uh, great capital partners when everyone else is uh, getting softer, we were getting louder. Mm. Interesting, Right. When everyone else was dialing back their marketing dollars and as a business owner, I can tell you, and as a, you know, an agency owner, I can tell you the best time to up your marketing spend is when everyone else is dialing theirs back. Yeah. It's a hard decision to make. It is. Yeah. Scary one too. <laughs> it's a scary one too. But if you know your KPIs, if you know your key performance indicators and you have metrics for success, then it's a risk, but it's not risky, right? There's a difference. My, my dad taught me a long time ago. There's a difference between risk and risky. Yeah. Take risks, just don't be risky. So that is from a marketing innovation. That's what we're trying to do. But when I look at the, when I look at the markets in general, when I look at trends, when I look at where the company's headed and how I'm handling, going to be handling 2021, we're getting louder. Awesome. That's all we're going to do is we're going to get louder. We're going to beat the drum. We have our value props. We have our focused on our audiences, you know, our target clients. We've got a team that's ready to rumble. You know, and we've got a technology that I think and I really believe is a game changer. Some technology is evolutionary. I think vertical farming and what we're doing is revolutionary. Yeah, I agree. And so that 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 to me is it makes gets me excited and just fired up for 2021 because we want to thrive on instability. And in fact, vertical farming is the answer for instability. Mm. It's a stable controllable environment amidst yeah. economic environmental community instability and it can provide that stability especially for that community it can provide that stability of food supply reminds me of the book uh, anti-fragile have you read that Nicholas? yes yeah <laughs> it's kind of that mindset as well yes exactly so yeah. So Eddie, the, the, the hour flew by. Um, thank you so much. There's lots of wisdom here. And I, I love the insight that you bring from your experience having grown and had success with your previous companies. And so you've, you've, you're creating this in, interesting hybrid. And I think your answer on what you're looking forward to in 2021 speaks to that exactly because you have this optimism, this energy, this enthusiasm that is contagious and I think is, is, is exactly what's needed for business owners who are actually want to position themselves to succeed in the upcoming year. So thanks for sharing that perspective. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah. So where's the best place for folks to, if they wanted to connect with you personally or learn more about Eden Green? Sure. It's just edengreen.com. Yeah. E-D-E-N, like Garden of Eden green.com and yes. then uh, to, for me people can reach out to me at uh, eddie b e-d-d-y-b eddie b at eatinggreen.com okay and we'll put make sure we put all those links in the show notes uh, for this episode as well but thanks again for your time yeah absolutely thanks again for having me 
Thanks again to Eddie for that wide-ranging conversation. I think I say that all the time about my podcast episodes, but you never know where they're going to lead. But I was really impressed with his past experience working for George W. Bush, starting his own digital marketing agency, having a keen eye for what works in marketing. It was really a lot of fun. Don't forget, if you're enjoying this podcast, leave us a rating and a review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash VFP. As you heard at the beginning of the show, we'll be sure to read them out on future episodes. Special thanks to our episode sponsor, Series Greenhouse Solutions. Find out more at seriesgs.com. That's C-E-R-G-S dot com. Until we meet again, here's to your health. Thanks for listening. To read the full show notes for this episode, which includes any links mentioned in the episode, as well as a full show transcription, visit verticalfarmingpodcast.com. There, you can sign up for our email list to be notified when new episodes are published. 